0: Book six, chapter forty four of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book six, chapter forty four. The saddest moment in the lives of these two persons, whose history we have followed for so long, was over and done with. Henceforward to the end, Ellesmere and his wife were lovers as of old. But that day and night left even deeper marks on Robert than on Catherine. Afterwards she gradually came to feel, running all through his views of life, a note sterner, deeper, maturer than any present there before. The reasons for it were unknown to her, though sometimes her own tender, ignorant remorse supplied them. But they were hidden deep in Ellesmere's memory. A few days afterwards he was casually told that Madame de Netville had left England for some time as a matter of fact he never set eyes on her again. After a while the extravagance of his self-blame abated. He saw things as they were, without morbidness. But a certain boyish carelessness of mood he never afterwards quite recovered. Men and women of all classes, and not only among the poor, became more real and more tragic, moral truths more awful to him. It was the penalty of a highly-strung nature set with exclusive intensity towards certain spiritual ends. On the first opportunity after that conversation with Hugh Flaxman which had so deeply affected her, Catherine accompanied Ellesmere to his Sunday lecture. He tried a little, tenderly, to dissuade her, but she went, shrinking and yet determined. She had not heard him speak in public since that last sermon of his in Muarville Church, every detail of which by long brooding had been burnt into her mind. The bare Elgood Street room, the dingy outlook on the high walls of a warehouse opposite, the lines of blanched, quick-eyed artisans, the descent from what she loved and he had once loved implied in everything, the lecture itself on the narratives of the Passion, it was all exquisitely painful to her, and yet, yet she was glad to be there. Afterwards Wardlaw, with the brusque remark to Elsmere. That any fool could see he was getting done up, insisted on taking the children's class. Catherine, too, had been impressed as she saw Robert raised a little above her in the glare of many windows with a sudden perception that the worn, exhausted look of the preceding summer had returned upon him. She held out her hand to Wardlaw with a quick, warm word of thanks. He glanced at her curiously. What had brought her there after all? Then Robert, protesting that he was being ridiculously coddled, and that Wardlaw was much more in want of a holiday than he, was carried off to the embankment, and the two spent a happy hour wandering westward, Somerset House, the bridges, the Westminster Towers rising before them into the haze of the June afternoon. A little fresh breeze came off the river. That, or his wife's hand on his arm, seemed to put new life into Elsmere, and she walked beside him, talking frankly, heart to heart, with flashes of her old sweet gaiety, as she had not talked for months. Deep in her mystical sense, all the time lay the belief in a final restoration, in an all-atoning moment, perhaps at the very end of life, in which the blind would see, the doubter be convinced. And meanwhile, the blessedness of this peace, this surrender. Surely the air this afternoon was pure and life-giving for them. The bells rang for them, the trees were green for them. He had need in the week that followed of all that she had given back to him. For Mr. Grey's illness had taken a dangerous and alarming turn. It seemed to be the issue of long ill health, and the doctors feared that there were no resources of constitution left to carry him through it. Every day, some old St. Anselm's friend on the spot wrote to Elsmere, and with each post the news grew more despairing. Since Elsmere had left Oxford, he could count on the fingers of one hand the occasions on which he and Gray had met face to face. But for him, as for many another man of our time, Henry Gray's influence was not primarily an influence of personal contact. His mere life, that he was there, on English soil, within a measurable distance, had been to Elsmere in his darkest moments one of his faults of refuge. At a time when a religion which can no longer be believed clashes with a scepticism full of danger to conduct, Every such witness as grey to the power of a new and coming truth holds a special place in the hearts of men who can neither accept fairy tales nor reconcile themselves to a world without faith. The saintly life grows to be a beacon, a witness. Men cling to it as they have always clung to each other, to the visible and the tangible. As the elders of Miletus through the way lay before them, clung to the man who had set their feet therein. "'sorrowing most of all that they should see his face no more. "'The accounts grew worse. "'All friends shut out, no possibility of last words. "'The whole of Oxford moved and sorrowing. "'Then at last, on a Friday, came the dreaded expected letter. "'He is gone. "'He died early this morning, without pain, "'conscious almost to the end. "'He mentioned several friends by name, "'you among them, during the night.' The funeral is to be on Tuesday. You will be here, of course. Sad and memorable day. By an untoward chance it fell in commemoration week, and Robert found the familiar streets teeming with life and noise under a showery, uncertain sky, which every now and then would send the bevies of lightly-gowned maidens with their mothers and attendant squires scurrying for shelter, and leave the roofs and pavements glistening. He walked up to St. Anselm's, found, as he expected, that the first part of the service was to be in the chapel, the rest in the cemetery, and then mounted the well-known staircase to Langham's rooms. Langham was apparently in his bedroom. Lunch was on the table. The familiar commons, the familiar toast and water. There, in a recess, were the same splendid wall-maps of Greece he had so often consulted after lecture. There was the little case of coins, with the gold Alexanders he had handled with so much covetous reverence, at eighteen. Outside, the irregular quadrangle with its dripping trees stretched before him. The steps of the new hall, now the shower was over, were crowded with gowned figures. It might have been yesterday that he stood in that room, blushing with awkward pleasure under Mr. Gray's first salutation. The bedroom door opened, and Langham came in. "'Hellsmere, but of course I expected you!' His voice seemed to Robert curiously changed there was a flatness in it, an absence of positive cordiality which was new to him in any greeting of Langham's to himself, and had a chilling effect upon him. The face too was changed. Tint and expression were both dulled. Its marble-like sharpness and finish had coarsened a little, and the figure, which had never possessed the erectness of youth, had now the pinched look and the confirmed stoop of the valetudinarian. "'I did not write to you, Elsmere," he said immediately as though an anticipation of what the other would be sure to say. "'I knew nothing but what the bulletin said, and I was told that Cathcart wrote you. It is many years now since I have seen much of Grey. Sit down and have some lunch. We have time, but not too much time.' Robert took a few mouthfuls. Langham was difficult, talking disconnectedly of trifles, and Robert was soon painfully conscious that the old sympathetic bond between them no longer existed. Presently, Langham, as though with an effort to remember, asked up after Catherine, then inquired what he was doing in the way of writing, and neither of them mentioned the name of Laburn. They left the table and sat spasmodically talking, in reality expectant. And at last the sound present already in both minds made itself heard—the first long, solitary stroke of the chapel bell. Robert covered his eyes. "'Do you remember in this room, Langham, "'You introduced us first, "'I remember,' replied the other abruptly. Then, with a the half-cynical, half-melancholy scrutiny of his companion, he said after a pause, "'What a faculty of hero worship you've always had, Elsmere." "'Do you know anything of the end?' Robert asked him presently, as that tolling bell seemed to bring the strong feeling beneath more irresistibly to the surface. "'No, I never asked,' cried Langham, with sudden harsh animation. "'What purpose could be served? Death should be avoided by the living. We have no business with it. Do what we will, we cannot rehearse our own parts. And the sight of other men's performance helps us no more than the sight of a great actor gives the dramatic gift. All they do for us is to imperil the little nerve, break through the little calm we have left.' Elsmere's hand dropped, and he turned round to him with a flashing smile. "'Ah, I know it now. You loved him still.' Langham, who was standing, looked down on him sombrely, yet more indulgently. How much you always made of feeling, he said after a little pause. In a world where, according to me, our chief object should be not to feel. Then he began to hunt for his cap and gown. In another minute, the two made part of the crowd in the front quadrangle, where the rain was sprinkling and the insistent grief-laden voice of the bell rolled from pause to pause above the gowned figures, spreading thence in wide waves of morning sound over Oxford. The chapel service passed over Robert like a solemn, pathetic dream. The lines of undergraduate faces, the provost's white head, the voice of the chaplain reading, the full male unison of the voices replying. How they carried him back to the day— When, as a lad from school he had sat on one of the chancel benches beside his mother listening for the first time to the subtle simplicity if one may be allowed the paradox of the provost's preaching just opposite to where he sat now with langham gray had sat that first afternoon the freshman's curious eyes had been drawn again and again to the dark massive head the face with its look of reposeful force of righteous strength join the lesson from corinthians Ellesmere's thoughts were irreverently busy with all sorts of mundane memories of the dead. What was especially present to him was a series of liberal election meetings in which Gray had taken a warm part, and in which he himself had helped just before he took orders. A hundred odd incongruous details came back to Robert now with poignant force. Gray had been to him at one time primarily the professor, the philosopher, the representative of all that was best in the life of the university. Now, fresh from his own grapple with London and its life, what moved him most was the memory of the citizen, the friend and brother of common man, the thinker who had never shirked action in the name of thought, for whom conduct had been, from beginning to end, the first reality. The procession through the streets afterwards, which conveyed the body of this great son of modern Oxford to its last resting-place in the Citizen Cemetery on the western side of the town, will not soon be forgotten even in a place which forgets notoriously soon. All the university was there, all the town was there. Side by side with men honourably dear to England, who had carried with them into one or other of the great English careers the memory of the teacher, were men who had known from day to day the cheery, modest helper in a hundred local causes. Side by side with the youth of alma Mater went the poor of Oxford." tradesmen and artisans followed or accompanied the group of gaunt and venerable figures, representing the heads of houses and the professors, or mingled with the slowly pacing crowd of masters. All along the route, groups of visitors and merrymakers, young men in flannels or girls in light dresses, stood with suddenly grave faces here and there, caught by the general wave of mourning, and wondering what such a spectacle might mean. Robert, losing sight of Langham as they left the chapel, found his arm grasped by young Crathcote, his correspondent. The man was a junior fellow, who had attached himself to Gray during the two preceding years with especial devotion. Robert had only a slight knowledge of him, but there was something in his voice and grip which made him feel at once infinitely more at home with him at this moment than he had felt with the old friend of his undergraduate years. They walked down Bowman Street together. The rain came on again, and the long black crowd stretched before them was lashed by the driving gusts. As they went along, Cathcart told him all he wanted to know. The night before the end he was perfectly calm and conscious. I told you he mentioned your name among the friends to whom he sent his good-bye. He thought for everybody. For all those of his house he left the most minute and tender directions. He forgot nothing and all with such extraordinary simplicity and quietness, like one arranging for a journey. In the evening an old Quaker aunt of his, a North Country woman, whom he be much with as a boy, and to whom he was much attached, was sitting with him. I was there, too. She was a beautiful old figure, in her white cap and kerchief, and it seemed to please him to lie and look at her. "'It'll not be for long, Henry,' she said to him once. "'I'm seventy-seven this spring. I shall come to you soon.' he made no reply, and his silence seemed to disturb her. I don't fancy she knew know much of his mind of late years. "'You're not doubting the Lord's goodness, Henry?' she said to him, with the tears in her eyes. "'No,' he said, "'no, never. Only it seems to be his will we should be certain of nothing but himself. I ask no more.' I shall never forget the accent of those words. They were the breath of his inmost life. If ever man was got betrunken, it was he, and yet not a word beyond what he felt to be true, beyond what the intellect could, could grasp." Twenty minutes later Robert stood by the open grave. The rain beat down on the black concourse of mourners. But there were blue spaces in the drifting sky, and a wavering rainy light played at intervals over the Witham and Hinksey hills, and over the buttercup river meadows where the lush hay-grass bent in long lines under the showers. To his left, the provost, his glistening white head bare to the rain, was reading the rest of the service. As the coffin was lowered, Ellesmere bent over the grave. "'My friend, my master,' cried the yearning fiddle heart, "'oh, give me something of yourself to take back into life, something to brace me through this darkness of our ignorance, something to keep hope alive, as you kept it to the end.' and on the inward ear there rose, with the solemnity of a last message, words which years before he had found marked in a little book of meditations borrowed from Gray's table, words long treasured and often repeated. Amid a world of forgetfulness and decay, in the sight of his own shortcomings and limitations, or on the edge of the tomb, he alone who has found his soul in losing it, who in singleness of mind has lived in order to love and understand, will find that the God who is near to him has his own conscience, has a face of light and love." Pressing the phrases into his memory, he listened to the triumphant outbursts of the Christian service. Man's hope, he thought, has grown humbler than this. He keeps now a more modest mien in the presence of the eternal mystery. But is it in truth less real, less sustaining? Let Gray's trust answer for me. He walked away absorbed, till at last, in the little squalid street outside the cemetery, it occurred to him to look round for Langham. Instead he found Cathcart, who had just come up with him. "'Is Langham behind?' he asked. I wanted a word with him before I go." "'Is he here?' asked the other, with a change of expression. "'But of course he was in the chapel. How could you—' "'I thought he would probably go away,' said Cathcart, with some bitterness. Grey made many efforts to get him to come and see him before he became so desperately ill. Langan came once. Grey never asked for him again. "'It is his old horror of expression, I suppose,' said Robert, troubled. "'His dread of being forced to take a line, to face anything certain and irrevocable. I understand. He could not say good-bye to a friend to save his life. There is no shirking that. One must either do it or leave it.' Cathcart shrugged his shoulders. And drew a masterly little picture of Langham's life in college. He had succeeded by the most adroit devices in completely isolating himself, both from the older and the younger men. He attends college meetings sometimes and contributes a sarcasm or two on the cramming system of the college. He takes a constitutional to summertime every day on the least frequented side of the road, that he may avoid being spoken to. And as to his ways of living, he and I happen to have the same scout. "'Old Dobson, do you remember? "'And if I would let him, he would tell me tales by the hour. "'He is the only man in the university who knows anything about it. "'I gather from what he says that Langham has become a complete valetudinarian. "'Everything must go exactly by rule. "'His work, his food, the management of his clothes, "'and any little concerto makes him ill. "'But the comedy is to watch him when there is anything going on "'in the place that he thinks may lead to a canvass "'and to any attempt to influence him for a vote.' On these occasions he goes off with automatic regularity to an hotel at Westmoreland, and only reappears when the Times tell him the thing is done with—' Both laughed. Then Robert sighed. Weaknesses of Langham's sort may be amusing enough to the contemptuous and unconcerned outsider. But the general result of them, whether for the man himself or those whom he affects, is tragic, not comic, and Ellesmere had good reason for knowing it. Later, after a long talk with the provost, and meetings with various other old friends, he walked down to the station, under a sky clear from rain, and through a town gay with festal preparations. Not a sign now, in these crowded, bustling streets, of that melancholy pageant of the afternoon. The heroic memory had flashed for a moment like something vivid and gleaming in the sight of all, understanding and ignorant. Now it lay committed to a few faithful hearts there to become one seed among many of a new religious life in England." On the platform Robert found himself nervously accosted by a tall, shabbily-dressed man. "'Elsmere, have you forgotten me?' He turned and recognized a man whom he had last seen as the St. Anselm's undergraduate, one MacNeil, a handsome, rowdy young Irishman, supposed to be clever and decidedly popular in the college. As he stood looking at him, puzzled by the difference between the old impression and the new, suddenly the man's story flashed across him. He remembered some disgraceful escapade—an expulsion. "'You came for the funeral, of course?' said the other, his face flushing consciously. "'Yes, and you too?' The man turned away, and something in his silence led Robert to stroll on beside him to the open end of the platform. "'I've lost my only friend,' MacNeil said at last, hoarsely. He took me up when my own father would have nothing to say to me. He found me work. He wrote to me. For years he stood between me and perdition. I'm just going out to a post in New Zealand he got for me. And next week before I sail I, I am to be married. And he was to be there. He was so pleased he had seen her." It was one story out of a hundred like it, as Robert knew very well. They talked for a few minutes. Then the train loomed in the distance. He saved you," said Robert, holding out his hand, and, at a dark moment in my own life, I owed him everything. There is nothing we can do for him in return but to remember him. Write to me, if you can or will, from New Zealand, for his sake." A few seconds later the train sped past the bare little cemetery which lay just beyond the line. Robert bent forward. In the pale yellow glow of the evening he could distinguish the grave, the mound of gravel, the planks and some figures moving beside it. He strained his eyes till he could see no more, his heart full of veneration, of memory, of prayer. In himself life seemed so restless and combative. Surely he, more than others, had need of the lofty lessons of death. End of Book 6, Chapter 44